So hey, I just wanted to invite you again just to back into the, the book of Exodus being led by fire this summer here at the church. And I'm really super pumped up just to tell you about a little bit where we've been. And then, of course, today where we're going to be going. So, uh, you know, really impressed by how God has just shown up in really powerful ways throughout this book. Uh, he's led his people by fire, whether it was the beginning, calling Moses, right, when he was this child. Uh, you know, he was survived through this genocide, uh, this attempted to destroy the firstborn of Israel, all male firstborn. And then he leaves, right, because he, he tries to basically, you know, uh, he, well, he just he heals a taskmaster, right? And like Moses is like, I got to get out of here. Like, they're coming for me next. So he runs to the, to, the, uh, to the desert, basically, and he's spending time as a shepherd. And 80 years into his life, God, in this burning bush, we see him led by fire. God speaks to him and he says, I'm going to send you to bring my people out of Egypt. And so God, with Moses and Aaron, like, he brings them through to Pharaoh and with these 10 plagues, they deliver this judgment upon Egypt and Pharaoh's finally like, look, you know, you can go out and worship for a little bit, but you got to come back. And then, well, no, I don't want you to go out. So I'm just kidding. Like, come back. And then eventually the 10th plague is like, just get out of here. Like, enough's enough. Like, I don't want to see you anymore. And so they go out into the wilderness. But of course, as they're traveling through, as we saw in Exodus 14 last week from Nathan, as they're traveling out to get away from Egypt, Pharaoh's like, wait a second, one more time. I need my help back. So they rush out to go seek them out. And that's what we're going to see here, uh, where we saw God step in in Exodus uh, 14 through this really big Red Sea moment. And that's where he stepped in in mighty power. So let's go back there just for a moment, and let's re revisit that. They're traveling, again, away from Egypt and, and away from Pharaoh's armies. And they make this turn. As they turn, they come back towards where Pharaoh's armies were. And they now, they're all of a sudden, behind them, right, is the Red Sea. And they're hemmed in between the Red Sea and the people of Egypt, the rushing armies of Egypt and these chariots and these big, these big powerful forces. And then God, very God, stands before them in this cloud. And this pillar of cloud stands before and says, you can't go to this other side. You can't pass through. I'm going to protect my people. And just when all the people, they thought that maybe all hope was lost, and they're just like, they start to complain against God. Like, we'd rather go back, right, and be slaves and then die out here in the wilderness. God says, Moses, raise your arms, right? And when you stretch out your arms, I'll begin to send my wind. And God does, and we're going to see that in the song we're going to sing this morning, right? That, that God sends his wind through his nostrils, right? And, and, and the waters begin to separate, and the floods pull back, and the Israelites are able to walk through on solid ground. And then as they walk through, as they were just about to walk through, God said this in Exodus 14, 14, he reminded them, hey, the Lord will fight for you. What does it say? All you have to do is be silent. Like, just be quiet and wait on me. And they trusted in God, right, as he did. And he stopped the winds, he stopped the waves, he held them back. And then the Egyptians said, well, we can go do this too. And they rush right in. And what happens? God goes, I'm going to pull back my hands. And bam, it crushes them and it buries the Egyptian armies to the bottom of the sea. So at moments like these, these great victories and things like this, like what, what should our response be when we see great powerful victories, whether it's in our own lives or whether it's things that we see right in the past, what's the right response? Like what would your response be? to a great victory in your own life. And you just sit there and go, yeah, I mean, you're probably going to do that. I mean, she jumps ahead a couple points, but Joey's got it right. That's what you're supposed to be doing. Apparently, Joey's not going to grab her journal and start writing about what happened there. She's not going to go to sleep. She's going to get up and sing, right? She's going to get up and shout for joy because that is the right response. Whenever you see something major in a, in a big, big event in your life, like we should celebrate these things. How many sports fans? In the room, any sports fans by raise of hand? Yeah, there's a lot of sports. I know you are. And if you're not raising your closet sports fan anyway, so it don't matter. Warrior fans, you remember probably likely 2015, the first time in 40 years that the Warriors raised the flag for the NBA championship in the Bay Area. 
And if you were a Warriors fan through the late 80s, early 90s, 2000s, you saw a lot of futility and a lot of struggle and just a lot of garbage. Like, I mean, we had some players like Tom Tolbert. I mean, God bless Tom Tolbert. I mean, he wasn't great. You know, he played in the NBA. I can't play in the NBA, but he was not a superstar. And Victor Alexander, we had the Eric Musselman era, right? You remember Charles Sprewell coaching, choking out his coach before we believe and we saw a lot of futility until 2015 when strength in numbers, right, delivered the first championship in the Bay. So I wonder, what was your response? Like mine, I can tell you what I did. Like I, I jumped up out of my seat, like I was super pumped up, I was screaming and, and going crazy. The kids, we had two young kids at the time, Luca and Carmelo were sleeping. Sarah's like, what are you doing? Like be quiet, like you're gonna wake the kids up. And of course, you got sleeping kids, you don't wanna wake them up. So I ran outside, I was texting my brother and my uncle, you know, and we, I was singing, we are the champions. Like it was just like, it was amazing, right? I had, I mean, in my life, besides the A's, I hadn't seen a championship. Like this was a really awesome thing for me. And I was pumped about that. And I had to celebrate that. And I think, guys, I mean, that, that to me is the way I think all of us would say we celebrate great victories. And if we don't, then I want to encourage you, this is how you should be celebrating. Because this is what we're going to see in our time this morning in Exodus chapter 15. Songs break out after great wars and great victories. Songs are breaking out. So if you didn't know, we're going to be talking about song this morning. Exodus 15, a little Bible trivia for you. Exodus 15 is the first recorded song in the Bible. So if you want to stump your semi-Christian believers, then you can throw them out with that one, see if they know what they're talking about. They bring us some old hymn, you know you got them. You know you got them. Uh, This song is called the Song of Moses, but you know, as you read through this song, you really see the power of God's triumph, the power of God's strength and his victory. It just comes out so very much here. Interestingly enough, uh, Revelation uh, 15 the last book of the Bible, also contains the song of Moses. It also contains the song of the Lamb, too, as well, but it's the song of Moses. And so what happens in, in Revelation 15 is this victory that is had by those who have stood against the beast and his armies, right, and have, have resisted falling for all that stuff. They get to sing the song, they sing the song of Moses. So in God's first triumph in Exodus 15, we sing the song of Moses, and when we triumph at the end, we sing the song of Moses again. So songs follow great wars, songs follow great victories because God's hand had delivered and will deliver us in the end. So whether it's personal struggling, stuff you're struggling with, right? Or whether it's national things we struggle with, the right response to great victories is song and praise. And so that leads us then to this question. Then what does our response need to look like or or who um, should our response be directed at? And I think that our response when these sorts of things happen should be directed directly at who God is, and they should focus on these three things. Who God is, what God has done, and we see that obviously in Exodus 14, which leads us to 15, right? And then what God promises to do, what he keeps promising to do. So in all this war talk, right, all this mighty battle stuff, victories lead us to worship, and worship always centers on God, always centers on God, who he is, what he's done, and what he promises to do. So at this point, I want to turn to our scriptures. If you have your Bibles in front of you, if you have your Bible apps in front of you, turn to Exodus chapter 15. We're going to be in the first three verses here early on in the morning. If you don't have that, it'll be on the screen to my left as well as up and above. Here's what it reads in Exodus 15. Then Moses and the people sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown in to the sea. 
The Lord is my strength and my song. He has my, become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him, my father's God. And just so you know, like my father's God, this is referencing back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like this is saying, look, this God who's before us now was the same one that brought, you know, brought Abraham out and gave him the covenant. This is our God who promises to be with us forever. This is our God. He's our salvation. We're going to exalt in him, right? And we will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. So... This leads us to our first point, your outline here. You guys got your notes up. Our first point in the outline about who God is, is God is a strong warrior. And let's go back to Exodus 1, uh, 15 sorry, uh, verses 1 and 2, where it says, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed glorious. Like, what did he do? Like, he threw the horses, he threw the riders and the chariots into the deep sea. That's triumphal. That's glorious, right? This is a big battle. God is my strength and my song, it says, right? He's become my salvation, it's reminding us. And we get a glimpse of who God is as a warrior again in Isaiah 42, 13. Check this out. It says, the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. This is the God who we serve, like this God who is strong. He takes up for his people. He fights for his people. We are his people, and he fights for us too. Later in Zephaniah, one of the uh, Old Testament prophets the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. We serve a mighty, strong warrior who is powerful to fight for you. So I just ask you, what are you struggling with this morning that you need to hear that God is a strong warrior, that he's victorious over the battles of your life? And if you've had great success and victories, then what do you need to celebrate him this morning for being that strong warrior king? I don't want to mistake about it because we have this image of who God is, especially in the person of Jesus. Like he comes in as this lowly, humble servant, right? He rides in on this donkey, right? And, and the same Jesus that came to try to reach the lost sheep of Israel. But there's a different view of who Jesus really is. When we see him in Revelation 19.11, check out what it says. Who Jesus is, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And check out. The one who is seated on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness. He judges and he makes war. This is our king, this humble low servant, right, who washed the feet of his disciples, who rode in town to get on that donkey, not some big, huge Clydesdale like you see in those Budweiser commercials, right, like this low little donkey, right, this low colt who emptied himself and came in the form of his own creation as a little baby, right? This Jesus, this very Jesus is going to come back someday, as a conquering king who makes war against the enemies of his people. We can have confidence in a God like that. As verse 3 of Exodus 15 reminds us, God, our God, is a man of war. He's going to fight for you. He's going to fight for me, which gives me great strength and confidence, and he's going to fight for his people, and he's not going to stop. Second point for us this morning is we're going to see that God is a place of salvation and refuge. Let's go back to Exodus 15.2 again. God has become my salvation. This word salvation, it's an important one to, to note. This word salvation is the word Yeshua in Hebrew. It may sound familiar to you. Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus. So Yeshua is the name that we see ascribed to Jesus. So Jesus, who's become our salvation, when, when this moment's happening, like God has become my salvation, like God has become my Yeshua. 
He has saved me. It means salvation. The word Yeshua means God is salvation. Salvation. That's what it stands for. And so Jesus, our salvation, like we see God rescuing his people at the Red Sea. God rescues us too through Jesus as his red blood ran down the cross. That's the power that we see of who God is. Here's a little more that we identify God as this place of salvation and refuge in 2 Samuel 22. 2 Samuel 22 says, For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock? Not Richard Rock, but he's a rock too. He's awesome. <laughs> who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge, and he has made my way blameless. God is our strong refuge, a place where you can find rest from your struggles and trials. Psalm 18, 2 says, The Lord is my rock again and my fortress, like nothing can penetrate right? He's my fortress. He's my deliverer and my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, my horn of salvation. Like again, he's your Yeshua, right? My horn of salvation and my stronghold. Where are you right now that you just need refuge? You need this place of rest and solitude from all the attacks that are going on from side to side against you where you can get rest and restoration and recovery. Like where are you? Where do you need to hear this right now speaking into your life? Like this rock, this fortress, like the fiery darts of the wicked one, they cannot penetrate this fortress because God is your fortress. He stands around the assaults, the negativity that comes, right? People's, people's voices that speak negative about who you are and where you're going, like that stuff cannot stop you, right? Where you've been cannot stop you because God's going with you. Like he's protecting you. This is your refuge. God is your rock, Amen. right? God is your rock. And that's why we sing in the end when we see battles like this. This is why we sing songs to God because he is our salvation and our place of refuge. Psalm 68, 19 and 20 says, blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. It says it again, God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. He's our Yeshua. I know I keep saying that, but I'm just going to keep drawing it into your head like he's our salvation. This is who he promises he is. This is what he promises to do. He's going to deliver us from our enemies. God is our salvation. And your third point on point number one, which is God is merciful and slow to anger. We see that in Psalm 86, 15, where it says, but you, O Lord, are God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And you might say, Chris, yeah, that sounds great and all, but... This same loving God destroyed the Egyptians. Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. That's true. I'm gonna give that to you. But our God is merciful in this way. What happened in, in Exodus 14 is his people are complaining against him. Like they'd literally just been out for just a little while. And they're wandering around. They've been out. And they're like, I want to go back. Like you should have left us there. I told you to leave us alone. And you brought us back into this. And they're grumbling and they push back. And what it still happens? God is merciful. He still lets his people out. He rescues his people. I mean, they had been in bondage for 400 years, and immediately when they're out, they complain, and God's, I don't care. I'm still going to deliver you to the promised land because I spoke it, and it's going to happen. This same group, after they pass through on dry land, right, what happens? Within the, just the first few days of them getting over, Moses goes up to Sinai to get the very words of God chiseled on stone, right? He's spending time out there, and he comes down from this amazing holy moment, 40 days, and what does he find the people doing? And worshiping false gods and idols already. And yeah, yeah, God did a little house cleaning. He did a little house cleaning at the time, and that's necessary because he's a righteous God. But he still let the next generation into the promised land because he promised to do it because he's a God who is slow to anger and rich in mercy. This is our God. 
Like, and even with the Egyptians, like, like Moses goes out and he, and, 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 and he gets these, you know, and they get these tablets. I'm sorry, he gets these tablets. And they, he gives them these plagues and he warns them. And yet God didn't destroy them completely then. I mean, he could have destroyed them 400 years before. But he gave them Joseph and Joseph helped them prosper, right? And then, and then their land is built up and they have these beautiful monuments. And I think Nathan said it last time, like, what's the purpose of these, these pyramids? They just stand there as big triangles, like we don't know what they're, th- they're there for. But they still built them anyways and they're pretty impressive. And that was the back of the Hebrews that helped build these things. And he didn't destroy them then. He tried to destroy the firstborn of Israel. God didn't destroy them then. He gives them 10 plagues, even after the last plague, taking the firstborn of Pharaoh, right, and of, and of, and of Egypt. Didn't destroy them then. He still gave them a chance. They rush out in the middle of the desert and they come after him. And God's like, I'm going to stand before you. Like, look, you cannot pass from this side. This is my people. Back up. Like, you need to stay back. I'm warning you. Like, don't come through here. And he parts the Red Sea. This amazing event happens. They think, we can do the same thing. And they rush in. And God's judgment finally comes upon the armies of Egypt. The truth is, though, is that our God withheld his hand. He is merciful and he's slow to anger. He's going to eventually take up for his people. And I want you to hear that. Sometimes we get things that happen to us and you're like, when is he going to take up for me? Like my enemies are surrounding me. Like this circumstance is surrounding me. When is he going to fight for me? Just know he's slow to anger, but he will take up for his people. Because the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter remind us that God doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants all to come to him in repentance. So he's slow to anger, he's merciful, and he wants all to come to him. So, our second point, I think, for the morning then, is we know that worship leads us to who God is, but it also leads us to what God has done, okay? So what has God done? Let's go to Exodus 15, verses 4 through 10, check it out. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them, and they went down to the depths like a stone. And it says, your right hand. And I want to stop for just a second on the right hand piece, because the right hand, this is what they call an anthropomorphism, which is basically just a human description of God. Now, God is spirit, John 4, 24, right? But this is a description so you can understand something about God, so you describe God in human terms. So God's right hand is this symbol of power, the symbol of strength, right? So God's strength is when you hear right hand, know that God's strength is going out. So your right hand, O Lord, it says glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemies. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up and the floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. I, my desire shall have its fill of them and I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. Uh-uh. But you blew with your wind, it said, and the sea covered them and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. See what they've done. See what God has done. This is why we sing this song. God destroys the enemies of his people. Pharaoh's chariots, it said, they were cast into the sea. So we learn about God from this then, our point on this is that he rescues his people from their enemies. Verses five and six say the floods covered them. They went down to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, again, we talked about that right hand, your, ma- your mighty power, the very strength of who you are, God. They went down and your right hand, glorious in power, God shatters the enemies. Did the Israelites take up weapons? They take out swords and start swinging their bows and start shooting? No. Like Nathan said last week, they take out pots and pans and start, you know, flailing them at things. No, they didn't do anything. Like, what did they do? They didn't fight at all. They stood there because they knew that the right hand of God, the very strength and power of God was going out to fight for them. First Exodus 14, 14 tells them again, remember, shh, quiet. 
Trust me, I, the Lord, will go out and fight for you. All you have to do is be silent. And there's many times we see God fighting. I mean, you know, reminded of some of the victories that he gave people like David and whatnot. But some of the oft maybe forgotten stories are stories like Gideon's, right? In Judges 7, you can get lost in there a little bit because Judges is maybe not our favorite book to read. But it's there nonetheless. Like Gideon takes this army of 300 that were, that were kind of widowed down, right, from a, a larger group. And God's like, here's what I'm going to do. Okay, because you're facing these massive armies of Midian, right? These big thousands and thousands of people of Midian have come to fight against the Israelites. And God's like, look, take pots, take some lamps, and take some trumpets. And you're going to go out at night, light those lamps, grab those pots, and smash those pots on the ground, and grab the trumpet and play. And at that sound and at that, that visual that they saw against the mountainside, like they ran, they were afraid of terror because they thought the great hordes were coming after them and they ran away from the armies of Israel. That's how our God, he fights. And another time, the prophet Elisha, he was standing in front of the king, in, 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 you know, standing in front of the armies of the king of Aram in 2 Kings 6. And the king of Aram was ready. He wanted to take the man of God. And, and, and Elisha had a servant and he's like, Elisha, they're surrounding us. Like, this is it. It's over. Like, what are we going to do? And Elisha's like, you don't see what I see. God, would you open his eyes? And as his eyes are open, he sees on the hills and the mountains around the armies of God, the horses of God standing ready to fight. And God strikes the armies of the king of Aram with blindness. And they come down and Elisha, they don't know it's Elisha. And Elisha goes, hey, he, he's not here, but let me lead you to where he is. And he leads him over to Samaria. And if you're familiar with Samaria, Samaria was the heart of the kingdom of Israel, like right into the heart of the enemy. That's our God. When he fights for his people, the mighty right hand of God will fight for his people. This is the confidence you can have. But it's not just that, right? Because God does another thing. God rescues us from ourselves. And we talked about this earlier, but if you see it going back, let's go back to Exodus 14, verses 11 and 12. With Pharaoh coming in, they're like, dude, I just want, I want to go back. Here's what it says. They said, it's because there are no graves, it's because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, Moses, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you? Like, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. And I really wonder if they actually said that or not. Maybe they just thought they said that, but it sounded really good at the moment, you know? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Are you crazy? Why are you bringing us out here, Moses? Like, just let us go back. We had steak. We had homes. Let us just die. But it's not just there that we see that God still was faithful to rescue his people. Just one generation later, um, you know, we knew that God was able to provide that, that victory. But also, too, for us now, as we remember our Savior, right? Like, like God in the New Testament and probably the most off-quoted scripture in all history, right, is John 3.16, that God so, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God's like, I'm planning, I'm providing this way, my Yeshua, for you, this Jesus, your way of salvation, because you don't know what you're doing. Even on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for you don't know what you're doing. And it wasn't just for the ones at the cross, but it was the ones for us too, because sometimes we don't know what the heck we're doing either. But God's like, I'm going to forgive you too. I'm willing to die for you. That's my promise. God promises to protect us from ourselves. And we need that. I know I need that. We also see this great thing that God has done. He controls the powers of nature. Let's go back to Exodus 15 and verses 8 and 12. At the blast of your nostrils, it says, the waters piled up. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up and the floods stood up, right? 
The deep's congealed in the heart of the sea. God has this power. His very power can cause the waters to stop. And then in verse 12, when he was done, he stretched out his hand and the earth swallowed them up. God is control. He's in power. His power is on display too. Just one generation later, after the fall in the desert, God said, you're going to have to wait a generation, but we're going to still let you go in, right? We're still going to let you go in. In the book of Joshua, they have this opportunity to finally pass through over Jordan into, the, into, the, you know, into Jericho to have the battle of Jericho that we all know. My kid was singing the song, you know, that uh, what is it, walls of Jericho came a-tumbling down, you know. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came a-tumbling down. I love that song. What we forget leading up to it maybe sometimes is that God said, look, here's what I'm going to do. I want you to take the Ark of the Covenant and put it on your shoulders. Put it on the shoulders of the priests. And as the priests step on the, on the Jordan, the river, the river Jordan, like it's going to separate and peel back. And so in Joshua 3:17, this is what it says, Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation had finished passing over. He did it again. For the generation before, as he did it for that generation right there, God's power controlling nature provided a passage for his people through the waters. We all remember the story of Jesus too, right? He's crossing over the sea and, you know, there's a great storm that comes and Jesus, he's just chilling on the front of the boat. He's sleeping, he's all good. Like no, nothing's bothering him and they're freaking out on the boat. Mark 4, 39 tells us, and, and, and they awoke him, right? And so then they awoke and Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea. And he said, peace and be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Why do you still have no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, check it out, ready? Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Like our God, our God, what he has done, our God controls the powers of nature. This is worth, this is a God who is worth ascribing songs to. This is a God worthy of our praises and worship and adoration for who he is. This is our God, our God of war, our God of salvation who rescues us from all of our enemies, who rescues us from ourselves. This is our God, the God we serve. He controls the power of nature and we should worship him. So we said that worship focuses on who God is. We said that worship focuses on what God has done, but it also lastly focuses on what he promises to do. And that's important for us sitting in this room because though we didn't live through the Old Testament times and some of the things we're seeing, we have a God who promises stuff for us in the future too. Exodus 15, 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever. So what does it mean? Well, the verse promises us this, another point for us. God will establish his people in their own land. Verse 17 shows us, it says like God's going to plant them on his holy mountain in Jerusalem. Like that's where he's going to be established. He's going to be with them and they're, and they're going to have their place there. And in Joshua, we see this commandment coming through, right? This song, right? The song that was sung in Exodus that we just saw, this, this brief portion of the song, he promises to establish them on his holy mountain. This is all before they fell in the desert. This is all before they actually got to the place. There's a whole generation that passed before Joshua was given this word from the Lord. It said in Joshua 1.6, be strong and courageous for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. God's like, look, I promised it. It's done. Remember the song we sing, right? Like you said it. I believe it. You said it. It is done. Like God's like, it's done. I promised to deliver my people. It's gonna happen. This is what, 
these people were singing about. This is what the song was written to. They knew they had confidence that God would deliver their people to the promised land. There's another promise that God gives us another point for us this morning, that he promises to continue to fight for his people. Let's go to the prophet Zechariah to find this. And this is a future battle, Zechariah 14, verse three. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. This future coming battle where our God will step forward for his people, it's coming. Like Revelation 19, a great place to see our warrior king coming back to fight this future battle for us. Jesus Christ, our conquering king, rides in like this in Revelation 19, 15, for his mouth comes from, a sh- from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the almighty God. In verses 19 and 22, carry on. I saw the beast, and this is who he's fighting against, right? And the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was seated on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it, the false prophet who was in his presence, who had done the signs with which he was deceived, those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. The two were thrown alive in a lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were slain by the sword that came out of the mouth. That is our God who fights for us, right? This is our God. He's going to continue to fight for us. God is faithful and true. Just a few verses earlier, in verse 11, we hear this saying about God being faithful and true. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, again, this white horse and the one who was seated on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Like our God, who we serve, is faithful and true. Where do you need to hear that? That our God is faithful and true. What are you struggling with right now? That you just gotta feel God's faithfulness, that his truth is speaking into your life, that he's gonna fight for you, that he's righteous when he makes wars against the enemies of your life. Because the enemies of your life are his enemies too. I'm reminded of the scene in The Godfather, right? Like, like the wedding, and the mortician comes to see Don Corleone, and he says, Don Corleone, all these problems are going on. He said, you know, if you just asked me to be your friend, he goes, then your enemies would become my enemies. And I believe that God wants to tell you that, his, that the enemies of your life are his enemies too as well. And he's righteous when he makes war. And he's gonna come back to fight for you because he fights for you because he will reign forever and ever. Exodus 15, 8 tells us this truth, that he will reign forever. You said it, Lord, and I believe, right? It says, the Lord will reign forever and ever. In case you think this is some Old Testament thing, like it's not, in Luke 1, we see the angel coming to visit Mary, and what does the angel, what does the angel tell Mary? Don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, you shall call his name Yeshua. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord your God will give him the throne of his, king, of his father David, and he will reign, how long? He will reign in the house of Jacob forever forever and of his kingdom there will be no end our god will reign forever revelation 21 3 and i heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of god is with man he will dwell with them he will they will be his people and he will be as himself their god what a beautiful promise our god The God who reigns forever wants us to be part of his reign forever. He wants us to live with him in his heavenly abode forever. Isn't that a great promise? And some of us this morning, maybe we would never heard that before. Maybe we've heard that, but we'd forgotten it. And I just want to invite you this morning to know that God can help you write your own song of victory too. 
No matter what you're struggling with, God can provide that strength. God can provide that truth, that hope, that faith, that knowing what you're going through isn't the end, whether it's that bad diagnosis for you or your family member, right? Maybe your marriage is falling apart or you're simply struggling in your, in your singleness. You've wanted that husband or wife to be brought to you and it's just not happening, right? Maybe your kid's struggling at school. Maybe they're struggling with you. And there's challenges and all of that. Maybe you've got that dead-end job you're wishing you could just get out of or you don't have a job at all. And you're like, God, would you just provide something? I need victory. Would you change something, God? How can knowing what God promises to do for you bring faith and hope in your life? I just got to say, we've got to ask ourselves these questions. They're tough questions, but we have to ask them. And if you ask them, I hope you come back to the stuff we talked about this morning because I think I've given you evidence to see who God is. God is a strong warrior. God is our place of refuge and salvation, a place of rest and restoration. From all the troubles, from all the trials we're experiencing, like God is there. He is merciful and slow to anger no matter what you've done. It doesn't matter. Like it just doesn't matter. Like God's like, I don't care. I love you. It's never too late for you. Like it's only late when you take your last breath. Before then, there's, you have hope in Jesus. Like it's possible. You're never too far from the love of Jesus Christ. And we see what God has done for us, right? As he destroys the forces of evil, he fights our battles, he fights our enemies. And you may say, Chris, yeah, that's great, but I'm my own worst enemy. I know, me too. Like I'm my own worst enemy too as well. I get it. But even through all my garbage and all my stuff and all my backsliding and all my anger and all my worry and all my anxiety, whatever it is, like God's like, it doesn't matter. Like I have power over your life. Like all my grumbling, like all the things I've done, the backsliding, God's like, I, I got this for you. I can rescue you from that. And he can rescue you too from all that. Like God controls the powers of nature. And if he controls the power of nature, then can he control circumstances in your life? Of course he can. Of course he can. It's God who lives forever. Like we think, man, 10 years, 15, 20 years, I've been struggling with this thing. This is so difficult. It's never going to change. And that's true. It's tough for us. But it's God who lives forever. It's like nothing to him. The time means nothing. The scriptures say a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. So to our God who, who's in charge of all that stuff, yeah, it's a tough struggle you're going through, but God is here for you and he will see it through to the end. I mean, this very God like took the mountains and just like pulled them up off the ground, right? This God who planted each star in the sky, this is our God. He's the God who we serve. He's the God that can lead you to victory in those situations that you're dealing with. He's the one that you can find hope in through your trials. He's the one in your victories that you can rejoice and sing, oh God, thank you, oh God, for you have rescued me. This is his promise and he's spoken it. This is his promise and it's done. And God's gonna continue to fight for you. People, if you think that your battle is done, it's not done, it's just begun. Like it's just begun. God's like, I'm gonna see you through your diagnosis. I'm gonna see you through. And even if that means death, I'm still gonna see you through because beyond death is life again. Through your marriage, I'm going to see you through all that stuff. I'm going to see you through your job situation, your kids' stuff. I'm going to see you through your singleness. I'm going to see you through your hopelessness, your depression, your anxiety, your addictions. I'm going to see you through all that stuff. I'm a God who's a God of victory. You see the end of the book? We've read it. We know our God has victory. We can have hope and promise in that this morning. Come on. One of the early church fathers, St. Augustine, wrote this great, beautiful thing about finding God. He said to fall in love with God. Fall in love with God is the greatest romance. To seek him, the greatest adventure, and to find him, the greatest human achievement. If you've never put your hope and trust in Jesus this morning, I just want to invite you to do that. 
If you did at some point, but you've kind of fallen backwards, I just want to invite you to get back on the right path. And if you've fallen down, get back up. Because today is, is the best day for you to meet the one who gave it all so we could have it all now. So we can have rich, true, real, abundant life now. So I want to invite you to be a part of the greatest romance, the greatest adventure, and the greatest human achievement. Let's pray, church. Father God, oh, wow, you're awesome. Thank you that you are a mighty warrior who fights for your people. Thank you that you are our salvation. You provided a way. You are a rock by your mighty right hand. Lord, you help bring us through waters. And God, even if we are struggling at the face of waters right now, God, we know you can part that and you can make a way. And God, it's my hope and prayer that those who have never put their hope and trust in you this morning, God, will reach out to you, Father, after hearing how powerful and how amazing and how awesome you are, that they would want that for their struggles, God, that they would want that for their sin. And they would hear you say, as far as the east is from the west, so far I've removed your transgressions from you. And Father, for those of us who have tripped and fallen, God, for those of us who are on our back, God, help us get back up because the fight is not over. Mind us, God, because you are forever, Father, that you will see us through. God, as we finish up our service here this morning, let our worship be an offering to you, God. To say thank you, God, for the victories you've given us in life and for the ones we know you'll deliver us from in the future. Maybe we're not struggling right now, God, but I know that I know this, that as long as I'm alive, there'll be challenges. As long as I'm alive, I never have to fight alone. Because I, says the Lord, will go out and fight for you. You just have to be silent. God, in the mighty name of your Yeshua, we sing praises to you. Forever and ever, Lord, be the glory to you. Amen and amen.